Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis. Our guest today is a children's book author, an aspiring birder, and a fierce advocate for mental health. Welcome, Jessica Whipple. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. It is so good to have you here. I was lucky enough, blessed enough, privileged enough to get a sneak peek of your book that is coming out. Tell us about, I think, I think a lot. Sure. Um, so it's about a girl who um, she overthinks, she worries, um, she obsesses, and then that ends up changing her behavior just a little bit. Um, she worries about things that kids worry about, um, but she also worries about things that are kind of like unusual. She compares herself to her peers and thinks like, nobody else is really like this. Um and she's based off of me. I have OCD. So a lot of the things that she worries about in the book are things that I've worried about. One of them, as an example, is she worries about appearing um, greedy. And so to sort of counteract that fear, she says thank you over and over again. Um, and so it's odd to the outsider. Um, so she she feels different than everybody else. But ultimately, she comes to realize that... Um, there's kind of like a, on the underside of something bad, there's often something good. So she comes to realize that there are good things about the way her brain works and um, notices that she's different, but doesn't feel like it's a detriment in the end. One of the things I so appreciated about this book, we have three children and they're four and seven and 10. And there was something in this book for each one of them. It was it was a book that would meet them where they are and kind of grow with them, which is a, that's a trick. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> I don't know how I did it either, but that's really good to hear that it's there. <laughs> it is. And I think, you know, kids do struggle with mental health in different ways and they struggle with comparing themselves to their peers and why am I this way when my peers aren't the one of the most moving scenes in the book is when she's in art class and she sees these other kids who are just painting and having fun and she's paralyzed with what color and how do I do it and was that piece autobiographical for you um that was a little bit of my daughter who um doesn't have a diagnosis, but we see things in her that, you know, there's a little bit of perfectionism there. Um, she gets overwhelmed sometimes with having to make decisions. And, you know, I remember thinking as a young parent, like, oh, here's what you do. You give them options and they pick from them. But <laughs> my daughter is presented with options and she can get overwhelmed. So um I was seeing myself surely in that, but also seeing my own children in that scene. 
I've heard that parenting advice and that has not worked for me either. I offer them options and they choose neither or they choose both or they melt down. And I'm like, I, I know this works really well for some parents. I am not the parent that it works for. Me neither. I felt like, like this is what we're supposed to do. This is what they say and it's not working. So the that author, was eye-opening. For sure. The author of the parenting book has not met your particular child or my particular right. children. Right. Well, the book is fabulous. It's beautifully illustrated and it also involves birds. I love the scene in the book with the birds. Tell me about how knowledge of birds, love of birds influenced this book and influences you as a writer. Sure. Um, there's, I don't know, there's a peace and a calmness to birds, which, you know, anybody can observe that. Um, but for me, I don't know, there's just a, um, just like a, a sense of in the book. So in the book, it's, um, comparing a bird to the child who says, thank you. And the bird in a sense is saying, thank you for life and for the world and for the creation. Um, even though probably scientifically a bird truly isn't saying thank you, but we sort of anthropomorphize that. And that's the way it reads to me. You know, when I hear a bird in the morning, it's just, it's full of joy. There's like, there's nothing wrong in a bird's life that the bird can even pick up on. I mean, surely there is, but um, the bird's just so full of joy and, mm -hmm. and just loves being a bird, you know? <laughs> And your character finds real peace and real hope in that. There's there's this kinship of the birds also repeat the same thing, but it's not bad. It's not wrong. In fact, it's beautiful. Yes, exactly. Yes. I had um, the poet Amy Nimichek on the podcast a few months back, and she has a, a collection of poetry called The Language of the Birds. And it's named because of this, this ancient myth that, that says, in the Garden of Eden, we all spoke this beautiful language. And when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, they forgot it, but the birds remembered. And this idea that the birds are still speaking this truth, this hope, this language that we may not be able to understand, but still can lift us up in a certain way. And I love that I like story. That. I'm going to yeah. have to look that up. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those myth and legend type of things. Not not from scripture, but still right. sometimes that that lights up our imagination in a way that I think helps us to see scripture with new eyes, to, to see mm -hmm. it more deeply. Where do you get the ideas for your books? Oh, my goodness. Um, for this one, I think I think a lot. I actually went into my diary from when I was newly diagnosed with OCD. And I read some of the things that I was worrying about and the apology or no, there was definitely apology kind of compulsion in there, but the thank you compulsion was there too. So, um, I felt glad that I saved that book. Um, and I saved it for my future children just so that I could watch for patterns that might be developing. Um, so I definitely got some specific ideas from there. And I mean, surely just parenting is full of ideas, you know, um, sometimes it's fun to just do like a play with, you know, stuffed animals and sort of test run picture book ideas. Um, just cause there's, you know, there's no stakes. Nobody's going to say like, oh, that doesn't work. So, uh, that's fun to do. We just kind of test run ideas and see where they go. 
You have your own in-house focus group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's really, that's beautiful. I, I love the book. I love the pictures. I love the idea behind it. Um, tell us about your own journey with mental health. What was your process of diagnosis like? And how can that offer hope for people who are maybe thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know if it would be helpful. Maybe I'll just muddle through. Sure. Um, so I was diagnosed with OCD at 13. Um, I'm sure there were things going on before that, that, you know, somebody who was paying attention would have picked up on. Um, not that my parents weren't paying attention, just that, I mean, it was the, what was it like the nineties? Um, so people, I mean, we know so much more now than we did then. And we knew a lot then too, but there's certainly more, um, to sort of sink your teeth into now and to, um, to help kids, I think earlier. Um, so yeah, 13, um, I still have OCD. I'll always have OCD. It's part of me and that's fine. I've come to terms with that. <laughs> I don't think of it as like a, oh, I'm, I'm cured or I got over it. It's something that I'll always have and will always be in treatment for. Um, but I've, I've come a long way in terms of like the, the treatment experiences I've had. Um, I guess I sort of self-diagnosed myself. I didn't, I didn't say like, oh, I have OCD, but as a child, I said, I think I need to see a therapist. Like, I think I need to go <laughs> to therapy. Um, and I was able to do that because there are people in my family who have gone and who, for them, that's a part of life. And it's not something to be ashamed of or, um, you know, something that's not discussed. It was like, I saw it. It was, you know, it was modeled for me. So, um, I, I thought maybe I should give that a try. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's helped a lot. Um, therapy and medication and support and just understanding is what's keeping me going at this point. I think it's one of the hard thing that hard things that's come out of the pandemic is the rise in mental health challenges among children. But one of the benefits is there's a greater awareness of it and kind of the stigma has lowered a little bit. So it's if you need therapy, if you need medication, if we need to talk about these things, you know, the the stigma wasn't as bad in the in the 90s when you and I were growing up as it was in the 70s or in the 60s, but it was still there. And I think there's there's real hope to be found in the fact that these things are talked about. We we were preaching through um, the the do not worry text at our church a year ago. And I called a therapist friend and I'm, you know, I said, I'm going to tell people in the congregation, do not worry, just pray and God will fix you. And there was this long pause and she goes, do not say that. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, thank goodness. I'm joking. Um, but we talked about, you know, our, our senior pastor is married to a therapist. My husband and I are pastors at the church. We both are in therapy. There's, there are such benefits to getting the help that you need. And even in, when you're not in a season of crisis, often that's where some of the best work can be done. You know, you don't have to wait until things are really, really bad. Um, and that's true for our kids as well. And I'm so grateful that there are books like yours out there that make this idea so approachable to children. It's not that something's wrong with you. It's not that you're broken. It's that God made us all different. And let's talk about that. And let's talk about what that means, what that looks like, how you might feel about that. Um, and it's just put in terms that kids can really understand. And um, I just am very grateful 
for you and for your work. Thank you. Yeah, my hope was to write a book about OCD that goes beyond like the assertiveness workbook that I was given in my therapist's office, you know, um, something that could be as easily accessible as any library book. Um, Because there's not really anything about OCD for kids that isn't like a a workbook or um, distributed in like a therapy office. So I'm grateful to be um, hoping, hoping to sort of make it more accessible. Yeah, your your book is very story driven and very the the pictures are very rich and beautiful. It doesn't feel clinical in any yeah. way. That's good. Yeah, Jose, I love her work. She's it's. I was so thrilled when Free Spirit selected her. So I was like, yes. <laughs> That's such an interesting part of the children's book writing process that I'm just beginning to learn about. Is you don't choose your illustrator necessarily. You're you're paired with them at the publisher, and you know. Pray, prayers ascending that it's a good fit and yours yeah, is such a good yeah. fit. Um, we, so authors have input for sure. Um, if we had strong views, I'm sure they would be heard, um, but still they could be overruled <laughs> by the editor. Um, but I mean, if, if your editor sees your vision for the story and understands it, it shouldn't there shouldn't be some sort of like disconnect between the editor's vision and the author's vision. So in my case, I've, I've been very happy with the selections that have been made for my two books. It has to be just a beautiful moment to get those page proofs and see your vision come to life in ways that I'm sure maybe you imagine some of it, but couldn't ever imagine all of it, how the illustrator puts it together. Yeah. And I, I'm not, I have no illustration skills. I I'm, creative visually, but I, I can't do anything like there's no, I have no composition skill. I would illustrate a picture book the way that they used to be illustrated where the images just strictly like literally are what's being said in the text. Like I have no vision. So yeah, it is really fun to see the directions that, um, the illustrators who've worked on my books have taken the story. Hmm. And you said, um, it must be neat to see the proofs for me. Like my kind of wow moment was when I got an email about the status of my first book enough is, um, the editor said it's shipboard and I'm like, Oh, shipboard. That's a neat word. Like, I've never heard that word before. <laughs> like They're talking about my book. It's on a ship. Like it's really on a ship on the ocean. <laughs> like this is really real to me now. So, um, yeah, you, what you said reminded me of that. It it doesn't feel real for me as an author until I hold it. Once I hold it, I'm like, okay, it exists. This happened. <laughs> yeah. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'll let you know. <laughs> totally. There's just, there's so much lag time between the writing and the actual holding it. I think people forget that piece too. My, my oldest son is 10 and whenever you know, one of my books comes in, he'll read it and say, this book says I'm eight and I'm not. I'm like, well, I wrote it two years ago. Like we just got it now. I'm sorry. And he's like, this is That's insulting. <laughs> it's a long lag time. <laughs> Well, Jessica, you call yourself an aspiring birder, and I love that. Tell me about your birding practices and what it is you aspire to. Sure. Um, I aspire to be the kind of birder who has a notebook of all the birds that I've seen (laughs) with drawings in colored pencil, but um, my notebook, I think, has three birds in it. 
And <laughs> that is a start. Uh, of course I've, hmm? That it's is a start. start. Yeah. I mean, I've seen way more than that. Um, and I know way more birds than that, but, um, certainly like I can't use binoculars. I can't track a bird in the binoculars. Um, birds have always kind of been a part of my life at like the low level. Like even now my daughters, when they visit my parents, one of the ritual things that they do is to go fill the bird feeder or like empty the bird bath and fill it again. And it's just, it's something to do. Um, but it's also just starting to be a tradition, which I think is really sweet and beautiful um, and simple, but um, very worthwhile. So, yeah, I mean, we've had bird feeders growing up. Um, there's a place by my house in near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up that every year for I'd have to look it up, but at least 25 years, there have been great blue herons that come and nest in sycamores right in the, um, like the bend of a Creek and the road, the road level is about halfway up the tree, like the tree height. So when you're driving, you can look out and just see the nests and see the birds roosting there and see the babies. And it's really, it's just really cool. Um, it's one of the, probably the first experiences where I have sought out a bird, you know, like a bird's not just passively entering my field of vision. Um, but growing up, I would deliberately drive there and stop the car and try to take pictures. Of course, the pictures were terrible, but, <laughs> but it, it's just, I don't know. It's something to count on just when I'm home to look for the birds and my family calls them cranes, but they're herons. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so there's that. And I really like long-legged birds. It's kind of like, <laughs> it's like my thing. I really like the ones with long legs that skitter along the beach or, um, you know, that stand in the streams or the lakes that I pass on the way to taking the girls to school. Um, I, I just, I like them. I, I love discovering a new kind, um, I love watching them move. I remember in college, there was somebody in a class with me and it was like one of those random get to know you stand up in front of the class, tell the class about yourself. And he said, like his random fact about himself was that he didn't like birds and he didn't like how they moved. <laughs> like, that is very specific, but also I kind of understand because they do move very strangely, but I that's part of what I like about them. Like they're always, some of them seem very anxious. Um, some of them seem calm, but, and he even said like, I just don't trust the way they move. <laughs> like that's part of what makes them so awesome. So someone showed him that Alfred Hitchcock movie when he was a kid and he like never recovered. They're coming for yeah. me, the birds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love so. your story about the great blue herons. It's so interesting to me that giant birds like that, and those almost look more like dinosaurs than birds. Like they have this reptilian look in their eye that like, yeah. Yeah. but they nest in trees. They're so big and they build their nests in trees. That's astonishing to me. That feels very precarious. They must be very good nest builders. Yeah. That now that I think of it, you're right. It does. It does seem very odd to see so many large birds that high. 
but it's they're sycamores, so they're very sturdy trees. <laughs> For sure. And their babies, I'm sure, are so much safer up there than on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I want to go to your great blue heron nesting site. I'll send that you a picture. Please, I would love it. <laughs> I would love it. There's there's a there's a place where black-crowned night herons nest um fairly near here and there's a giant sign, a giant plaque that says this is where they nest. They nest in this tree. And I was I was new to birding and I'd never seen one. I wanted to see one and I'm standing underneath this tree and I can't find any of I can hear them. I can't find them. I can't see them. And these two older gentlemen walked up beside me and one's got a cane and they're like, have you seen the birds? And I was like, no, I can't find them. And they were like, well, look down. And I look down and there are giant piles of white bird droppings. And they're like, yeah. look above one of those. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm standing oh. in the evidence. And if you follow the evidence, you can find the nest. It was so funny. I was looking in the wrong place. You needed the, you needed the map. But they too nest in trees. And mm-hmm. it's it's astonishing because they're not as big as great blue herons, but they're sizable and they're heavy for birds. Yeah. Um, and they're all up there just singing their songs, doing their thing in this big tree down by... Dana Point Harbor. I've not seen one of those. I mean, I know what they look like. I'm aware of them, seen pictures, but I've never seen one in the wild. Um, we have a lot of egrets around here, which is really fun because long legs, of course. <laughs> egrets are so cool. Where Where are you located now? You said you grew up near Pittsburgh. Yeah, we grew. I grew up near Pittsburgh and moved. So that was the west side of Pennsylvania. I moved out east, so I'm in Lancaster now. And it's uh-huh. amazing. It's a different hardiness zone but it's also significantly different. There are so many different birds here and I never really left Pittsburgh. So besides vacations, but I always enjoy seeing what different animals are in different places. And I was surprised just to go four hours East to have such different flora and fauna was I don't, delightful for me when we first moved. I'm like, wow, it's, this is amazing. <laughs> My husband's just like, mm, okay. <laughs> That to me is one of the most interesting parts of birding is you truly can, you can drive an hour or two hours. And if the flora and fauna is a little bit different, you will see, oh, I guess birds are included in the in the fauna, but you will yeah. see so many different types of birds because even if the temperature is different on average by two degrees or it gets a little bit more rainfall or it's more of a wetland or... I was I was with a friend in the California desert a short time ago and it was less than a 2-hour drive and I saw four new species of birds that I've never seen before and it was like Christmas you know I I felt bad I wasn't doing a good job listening to my friend cuz I kept looking over her shoulder like what kind of hummingbird is that like focus Courtney <laughs> but that close by and that's true of almost anywhere you go in the country and almost anywhere you go in the world if you drive a little distance and keep your eyes open you might be surprised by something spectacular yeah, that's very true. Um, so yeah, I enjoy I enjoy seeing different birds where I go. Um, we have a little bird book that was like from the 70s. It's one of those little like teeny ones. Um, and my daughter, my oldest daughter, when she was two, we would go through that with her. And she could recall by, you know, the images, what bird was what. She knew black crowned night heron. She knew mockingbird. She knew um, different warblers just like, this is amazing. Um, makes me a little sad that she has lost some of that now, but, um, we still really enjoy, um, getting out and hiking. And there's a place here called Middle Creek Wildlife, um, preserve where nearly a hundred thousand, um, well, there's tundra swans and there's a hundred thousand snow geese 
every year that come. And yeah, it's this, it's this, um, it's a lake and, you know, there's hiking, but every year they come here on their way to Canada, I believe. And the first year we saw them, um, it was during the pandemic. So we had just moved here. We knew about the snow geese that came and we're like, oh, let's go see the snow geese. And I mean, it was probably 300 people were just lining this roadway and this park just waiting for them. And we could see up over the hill, they were, I don't know if they were eating or doing something on the ground. Um, and we could see them and we're just, there's like this sort of this buzz, this sound that they're all making. And then suddenly way off in the distance, one or two start to take flight and then it's five and six and then it's like 30 and it's, you know, 20,000. And then just amazingly, they just all soared overhead and we're just like, wow, that was incredible. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I have a video. I should send it to you. You would like it. Um, it was just really cool. A bird alone is a beautiful and wondrous thing. Hundreds of birds are, it's, it's, it's a little bit like a school of fish. It's a little bit like a thunderstorm. It's like you, you almost can't put it into words. It's just this exercise and wonder unless you're managing a golf course full of Canada geese and then it's not great. It's not great for you. <laughs> But the, when the sandhill cranes come through, you know, I, I have friends sharing these stories with me of spring migration and, and fall migration and just the glory of being able to be in that one spot at that one moment that this beautiful thing has happened. And it would have happened whether you were there or not, but you got to witness it. It feels very special. I always think of, I think it's from Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Annie Dillard has this phrase and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it because I'm not going to get it perfectly right. But talks, she talks about how acts of beauty and grace are done, whether or not we will or sense them. And the least we can do is try and be there. And yeah, I think about that, like the magic that happens outside my window or in, in my backyard, that's going to happen whether or not I'm paying any attention. But if I pay attention, I'm transformed. I'm changed by it. Uh, yeah. That's lovely to think about. And I think then I get my parent guilt of like, but sometimes I'm too tired to pay attention because so-and-so is up last night with a bad dream and so-and-so has the sniffles and couldn't go to school. And, you know, it just, I have to be kind to myself. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can't pay attention to everything all at once. We can't. I think it's called paying attention because it, it costs us something. And at the end of the uh, day, you might be, you might be out of, out of coins in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jessica, where are you finding hope these days? Your your books are so hopeful and your story is so hopeful, but it's a it's a rough hard world out there. Where are you finding hope? Yeah. Um well, I guess in terms of like the OCD, there have been times during a crisis when it feels very hopeless, especially knowing that this is something that I will always have. Um something could happen in my life that could trigger a setback and maybe my balance of meds and therapy gets thrown off. And so what one day might've been equilibrium the next day is not. Um, when I'm in that the next day is not moment, it's very hard to remember that I've been there before and mm. I will be there again, very likely. Um, so that can feel very hopeless, um, especially knowing that like there is a physical 
chemical reason for this in my brain. Um, it's, it's just a given for me. So in those moments, um, it's kind of like, you can put your hope in the medicine for sure. Put your hope in the treatment. Um, there have been times my husband and I have had to say like, we don't know the answer, but we're going to trust this psychiatrist who knows about the medicine and knows about the condition. Um, we don't have those answers, but we have him or her, and we're just going to put hope in that person. Um, or, you know, uh, we're going to put hope in the community that's surrounding us and um, loving us and caring for us. Um, and in a sense, like, worse comes to worse. None of this gets any better. When God remakes the world, everything will be better. And I just remember thinking like, but no, like that is not good enough. And just the shame that I felt for thinking that, you know, like mm. I want to be better now. I want this to be good now. Like I'm here living this life. I don't want to wait. Um, so those are hard moments, but in trusting that things will get better at some future time, I do have hope that things can also be better now. Like, mm. I don't believe that, um, that goodness is something reserved for later. I mean, I've seen it. I've, I've experienced it. I've gotten better. Medicine has worked. Um, my brain chemistry has changed. My thought processes have changed. So, um, I guess something that gives me hope now is knowing that, um, that I've had hope before, like mm. at a time when I'm suffering, if I don't have hope at that moment, I can remember that I had it in the past and that other people have it for me, even if I don't have it at that moment. That's really beautifully stated the connection between memory and the the faithfulness of God or the effectiveness of a treatment or things in the past. And also that knowledge that there are seasons for all of us where we need the community to carry us. And yeah. maybe we don't have hope in that season, but the hope of the community, the work of the community can, can carry us. I, <laughs> I'm remembering I, I I broke up with a boy in college and was just totally devastated. And I'm sitting, you know, sobbing on my dorm room floor. And my my roommate came in. I, I went to Wheaton College. It's eventually where my husband Daryl and I met, but this was not about Daryl. Um, <laughs> and my roommate came in and she said, you know, you look like you need a friend. And I said, I don't. I need to be alone. I'm really sad. I'm upset. And she wouldn't go away. <laughs> she said, Courtney, there, there are seasons where we all need a prayer that's stronger than our own. And it it ministered to me so deeply. I think about it almost every week that it is not about the me and my own up by the bootstraps spirituality, which by the way, I learned just this week that the up by the bootstraps metaphor, the whole point of it is it's impossible. Like you cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Like you will just fall down. It's, oh. it's right. You have nothing to stand on. It doesn't work, which was so interesting to me, but the I love how you put it about the the hope of the community and the weight of the community. And I think as as people of faith and also as people in the birding world, there there is such grace in being part of something bigger than just 
you and your mental health struggles than any of us in our mental health struggles to remember that we're not alone. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm talking with a friend now who is struggling with some things and um, like, I want him, I want him to believe me that it will get better, you know? Um, But all I can offer him is like the commiseration and the reality that I have thought those very same things too. (laughs) Like I thought they weren't going to get better, Um, but they did. So um, yeah. To not be alone in that place of, despair, whether or not he believes you, the fact right. that he's not alone is is really significant. I also love what you said about the future hope is one thing, but you need to believe that, or I think you said you do believe that goodness is also for now, that it yeah. isn't just one day we'll fly away from these troubles. And, you know, I'm, I'm reaching the age where I'm like, okay, that ankle will never be as good as I need it to be anymore. Like it's not, you know, I don't have a time machine. I can't be 15 before I broke it in high school. <laughs> um, but it's not just about waiting for someday. It's about the, the goodness of God in the land of the living, because mm-hmm. we can't just exist on maybe in 30, 40, 50 years, this will be better. How does that influence how you live from day to day, the goodness now? Oh, um, just trying to appreciate small things. Um, I, I feel healthy now, so I'm not in like a crisis or anything right now, but, um, even so I like to maintain the practice of noticing small things so that when I'm noticing every little thing and it's making me absolutely stressed out. Um, I can also notice the small good things like nature. Um, I love to be outside and um, I probably like hiking the most out of my family of four. So I have no problem going (laughs) by myself to there's a wildflower preserve here that in March and April just, is amazing. It's beautiful. Um, and it's completely untouched. So the hillsides are purple and foxgloves and everything. So, um, if I'm feeling like I need to reconnect to kind of like the most basic elemental things, um, if I'm feeling like I need to work on being present, I do like to go outside Mm. and hear sounds other than what's in my head. (laughs) There's something to that. Yeah. <laughs> we all need an escape from our, what's in our own heads. <laughs> and I was even thinking I was on a walk yesterday. Um, just hearing a leaf blower in the distance gives me such comfort. Like hmm. if the neighborhood is feeling really empty, like everybody is somewhere else and I'm the only one around and it's kind of lonely. If I hear a leaf blower, it's it reminds me that like I'm really not by myself. <laughs> There's other people around. I am so glad to hear you say that that sound gives you comfort because I have told Daryl, if I ever show up ranting and raving at a city council meeting, it will be about the leaf blowers. I cannot oh. hear the birds when the leaf, they drive me bananas, but this, this is helpful perspective for some people. They are a means of grace. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, I am aware that most people hate them, but I don't know. For me, it's just like, there are other people in the world. It's not just me. I will think of you now every time I hear a leaf blower. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So Jessica, what is your favorite bird today? Today, today, what is your favorite bird? 
I'm glad you limited it to today because it does change. Um, today, I would probably say the great blue heron that I see almost every morning fishing at this little pond on an Amish farm where there are horses and cows and Canada geese. Um, but this heron has been there every morning and I was thinking about how he just must understand that morning is a good time to fish. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I guess he knows something about the fish's activity or lack of activity, that that's a good time for him to go there. Um, so yeah, I would say the great blue heron. Hmm. Um, but in the spring and the summer, there's a ruby throated hummingbird that comes and perches on our wire that goes from our house to the telephone pole. And I didn't discover it until last year. We've been in this house for two years, but I didn't, I didn't notice that it had been visiting. And every afternoon around the same time, it sits on that wire and I kind of camp out by the window. Um, and I try to take pictures with my not very fancy camera, but it is not, it's not a phone camera. So that's a step up for me. Um, it's a step up from what I've got. I'm like, why is it blurry? Oh, because it's an iPhone. Yeah, well, it's like I have to take, I'm zoomed way in. I have to take 30 pictures to get the one that looks kind of not blurry because um, I don't have a tripod or anything like that. So um, that's my second favorite bird. Hmm. I won't tell him he's your second favorite. We'll just we'll just let him think that he's yeah. he's also very special. You can have a, a favorite <laughs> tiny one and a favorite tall one. That's right. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love that. We we have many different varieties of hummingbird out in California, but we don't have ruby throated. And and that was oh, wow. the hummingbird of my childhood. I thought that was the only kind that existed and I miss them. They're beautiful. There's a couple shots that I have where its throat is just turned the right way and it's it really does look like it's glowing. Mm. It's very cool. I love that they look different from different angles, which is frustrating if you're trying to ID it and you're like, is it purple? Is it orange? Is it red? What is it? But it's 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 fascinating how their feathers can catch the light in different, different ways. Birds yeah. are amazing. They are. I do think though that there's a bird hoax afoot. Um, I don't think there are different kinds of sparrows. I think they're all just brown <laughs> They're all just brown birds. You can't differentiate between like this sparrow or that sparrow, chipping sparrow, or I don't know, common sparrow. That might not even be one, but they all look the same. That's where the sound ID comes in helpful because often, and birders will call them the LBJs, the little brown jobs. Like you can't, it's almost impossible unless you're an expert, 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 which I am not. But the sound ID does help because they do sound different. Okay. But I think your next children's book should be about the the uh, the sparrow hoax. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> the great sparrow yeah. sparrow hoax of 2023. <laughs> <sighs> well, Jessica, we have we have talked in great detail about beautiful picture books, and really, a picture is worth a thousand words. So people. People just need to go find them. They need to read them. Jessica is the author of I Think, I Think a Lot and Enough Is. They are beautiful picture books. Jessica, where can we find you? Where can we find your books? Sure. Um, you can get them at anywhere books are sold. Um, you can get them at indie bookstores. You can get them at Barnes and Noble. Um, I'm very pro indie, so um, support your local indie bookshops, but you can get them at Barnes and Noble and Amazon as well. Amazon will give them to you too. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I want to encourage everyone to check them out. You can follow Jessica and her social media. I will link to all of these things in the show notes. And she is just a wonderful voice of hope. And if you have kids in your life or grandkids or kids you babysit for, I cannot recommend these highly enough. They are beautiful and winsome and encouraging and hopeful in the best possible ways. And there are birds. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today, Jessica. It has been such a delight. Likewise. Thanks for having me. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Put this on your soul. Yes, it does.